In the Good Life podcast, I've typically interviewed people, but my friend McGregor Duncan recently suggested that we do something different. He and I catch up pretty regularly to talk about politics and policy and what we're reading, and we thought we might do something of a uh, fly-on-the-wall exercise, uh, which we're calling The Good Book. Uh, Mac and I have known one another for uh, about half our lives. Uh, he succeeded me as Michael Kirby's associate. We uh, uh, were together studying in the United States and uh, uh, he was uh, uh, one of the groomsmen at my wedding. Uh, we're going to talk today about uh, two books which go to some of the social challenges in the United States. Uh, Hillbilly Elegy and Strangers in Their Own Land. Uh, Mac, uh, welcome to our first episode of the Good Book Conversation. Well, thanks, Andrew, and thanks for inviting me back. <laughs> Great to have you back. Now, uh, Hillbilly Elegy, what stood out to you? Well, I mean, I think as many of your readers will know, it's uh, it's a book that has taken America by storm over the past uh, over the past year or so, particularly in light of President Trump's election. Uh, as a as a sort of a thoughtful and nuanced portrait of uh, of of uh, of life in Appalachia and the struggles uh, through the eyes of a uh, of a young man who who sort of exhibits this rags to riches uh, story uh, and through that I think is able to. Um, to, to articulate some of the, the key themes that many of us have been grappling with over the past year as we try to understand, you know, how is it that someone like Donald Trump could, uh, could, could rise to power? You know, I mean, I think, um, you know, if we just maybe for the, for the benefit of those who haven't read the book, uh, you know, uh, so J.D. Vance uh, grows up in a small town in Ohio, a Rust Belt town, uh, it's on the edges of Appalachia, uh, the Appalachian Mountain uh, Range, which uh, obviously runs uh, from uh, from southern uh, from the, uh, the southernmost reaches of the United States, right uh, right up into uh, uh, up into Vermont and Maine. Uh, uh, but his story is about uh, about his family, uh, which suffers uh, disintegration, really. Uh, both at the hands of economic forces in these Rust Belt towns, but also social disintegration. Uh, and so, uh, you know, we hear these, uh, these quite remarkable stories uh, about growing up in, that, in, in those circumstances and how through, uh, through hard work and through some cultural, uh, some cultural factors manages to escape that, uh, that environment. Uh, both through joining the Marines and then later uh, uh, by attending Yale Law School uh, and eventually uh, now finding himself uh, as an investor with Peter Thiel in San Francisco and a celebrity uh, commentator on these, uh, on these key trends that we're all grappling with. One of the things that uh, I remember stood out to me was that moment in what he describes in which his uh, drug-addicted mother is facing a... Uh, uh, a, a drug test and she just walks into the house where he's living with his grandparents and says, uh, JD, will you piss in this cup for me? Uh, and he finally makes the break and tells his mother no. Yeah, I mean, and, and I mean, the stories of, you know, the violence of his father, uh, obviously battling an alcohol addiction, uh, the sort of, you know, his mother's continual efforts to do the best by him, but you know, undone often by her own poor choices uh, and other and other and other factors, uh, and he's eventual. You know, he's eventually eventually required to move in with his grandparents, uh, who provide a little bit more stability for him. Um, but it's a fairly bracing portrait of of life in some of these these uh, these Rust Belt towns where jobs have disappeared, uh, and. Um, you know, I mean, I think it, it definitely provides an interesting lens through which to view some of the anger uh, uh, that we, you know, that we that we often uh, that we often read about and, and, and encounter uh, um, in the context of, of Donald Trump's political support. 
And some of the cultural observations struck me too. He tells that there's the anecdote of uh, being at a fancy dinner at his university and confronted by a whole lot of uh, knives and forks and not being sure which to use. So he makes an excuse, goes to the bathroom, phones his girlfriend and, uh, and asks her uh, what to, which, which knives and forks he should use first. Yeah, it's a. I mean, uh, that that also uh, caught my attention. It's a terrific, it's a terrific story. I mean, I, I, there are, there are a couple of those moments which I found somewhat apocryphal. I mean, I'm not, you know, I mean, uh, by the you're calling him a liar, basically. By the time by the by the time uh, these stories are recounted, he's been at Yale Law School for you know for for, for a couple of years. Yeah. I mean, you know, we've obviously both spent time at Harvard, and it's a sort of hard to imagine in that situation that you wouldn't. Uh, uh, um, that you wouldn't pick up on some of those things. I mean, I think the ones that I, I, I have in mind are when he turns up to a, an interview with a New York law firm wearing his, his sort of military fatigues and his combat boots um, <laughs> because he didn't realise that it was inappropriate, uh, mm. that, he, that he ought to have a pair of dress shoes with a suit. It's sort of hard to believe that, that's, uh, that after two years at Yale Law School that you would, that you would think that. He has this other great story, which did make me laugh out loud, about where he's at a, at a, you know, he's at a cocktail reception for one of his interviews with a New York law firm, and he, he drinks a glass of sparkling water and he spits it out, thinking that something's gone wrong with the water, that it's obvi obviously off, <laughs> uh, having never never tasted sparkling water before. So sort of, yeah, I did think they were slightly apocryphal, but I thought more importantly, they were really powerful insights to I think what is true. Uh, uh, across the United States and probably true here in Australia as well, which is that there is a big cultural divide which separates, uh, which separates classes these days. It's not simply an economic divide. Uh, that there are, you know, that there is there is access to knowledge, and uh, and ways of doing things, uh, which definitely de demarcate people in the know from those uh, outside. And I think sometimes those delineations can be even more. Uh, sort of alienating than the, than the than the economic ones, and I think, you know, in the context of in the context of Donald Trump's support, and why, you know, we've we've discussed this many times, Andrew, but I mean, it's you know, when you when you actually look at the demographics of Donald Trump's support, it's not just the poorest people uh, in the U.S. Mm. Um, you, know, you know, his base is 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 for the most part middle class whites. The animosity, the intense animosity that they have towards the establishment, the liberal establishment and the elite, is something to behold. Uh, and I think that reflects some of these cultural issues that we're talking about. Um, you know, the sort of uh, that react, the reaction to uh, to the disdain and the snobbishness uh, which is exhibited towards them by a, by an establishment or by a, a liberal elite. And that doesn't go hand in hand with economics. I mean, that is that is as much a social phenomenon as it is a as a as an economic one. I think one of the most interesting surveys I've seen this year is one that uh, polled Republicans and found the majority of Donald Trump supporters interpret attacks on Donald Trump as attacks on people like me. Uh, so at least in the first year, many Trump supporters are uh, backing backing their man and seeing criticisms uh, even when they're uh, focused on you know, quite, quite specific patterns of, of behaviour or actions uh, as, as having a general flavour of, uh, of you know, cultural war, if, if, for want of a better term. Yeah, I think I think I think that's right. It sort of picks up uh, the second book that you'd referenced, uh, which is Strangers in Their Own Land. Mm. Uh, you know, and I guess I guess here the you know the key the key point that the author is trying to uncover is you know what she calls this great paradox uh, at the heart of American society, which is why you know why why do folks in Louisiana or you know, other 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 uh, uh, sort of ec economically impoverished states in the U.S. Uh, why 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 do people in those states favour uh, who who so who so need government support uh, favour uh, you know the Tea Party um, and you know uh, in the context of her uh, her analysis she sort of uncovers what she terms this deep story uh, about why. Um, 
why people support the likes of the likes of Donald Trump, and it does come down to those those cultural issues, that sense that people work hard, uh, they think they're doing the right thing, and yet they see what they think of as queue jumpers and the like, uh, and it sort of and it, and it inflames them. And when they see Donald Trump, uh, you know, for the first time, they finally feel that they're uh, um, you know, they get they get this giddy excitement about finally finally a narrative which explains the way they feel, uh, the way they intuitively feel, and so it's an emotional it's an emotional connection. Um, and I think what's interesting about that is we you know we we sometimes have these discussions where so much of the focus is on is on economics, is on inequality, uh, um, is on stagnating. Uh, uh, sort of median wages and the like, and I, I think while all of that is sort of lays the groundwork and is the fodder for um, for this wider story, it is nonetheless true that uh, that that part of the appeal of Donald Trump is is this emotional this emotional appeal that suddenly you are uh, you know you needn't feel silly for having these these views. Where, where liberals may have disdained you for, you know, for, uh, you know, for, for owning a gun uh, or for, um, you know, or, for, or, or, or have labelled you as racist or homophobic, uh, that now suddenly you have someone in the White House who sort of legitimises uh, those kinds of feelings. And Ali Hochschild's book is is interesting to me in in conjunction with uh, with J.D. Vance's because Vance is very much telling his own bio, uh, whereas Hochschild is is going in as a professional sociologist, going down to Louisiana. Uh, she's from uh, uh, the east, eastern states, and so uh, is painting painting a more a more systematic portrait, I guess, but a fascinating one. Uh, and as much on the environmental side as he's looking at the social, social side. So, you know, all these people uh, she meets who say, uh, I haven't heard a bullfrog in the bayou for years. And then they go. she goes on to forensically dissect how the uh, mass pollution of industry in Louisiana has made it the most polluted state in the union. And yet, at the same time, it's also one of the places where citizens are most in favour of these polluting industries. Yeah, uh, it's, it's fascinating, isn't it? And I mean, part of that, I mean, the government, the sense of suspicion around government is is what's what's really interesting in the US. Is sort of something that you don't find too much here of uh, too much here in Australia, or at least it's a it's a sort of a watered down or diminished uh, version of it in Australia. Um, but you know, but I mean, sometimes. Uh, Look, U.S. government services are bad, though. Uh, you know, the, the the you know we've both lived in the U.S. Uh, for a long time. Um, you know, the U, the U.S. federal government is does not cover itself in glory in the way it handles uh, the way it handles uh, many issues. Um, you know, I think there are various cultural reasons for that. Obviously, the U.S. was founded in suspicion of government. Australia was in some ways founded with government uh, right at it, right at right at the, the right at its core, um, but that continues right down to today. I think, uh, you know, I mean, there. If you look at the quality of people who who go into government services in the U.S., uh, it's a different quality of person from whom would enter government service in Australia. Uh, uh, and so I think that 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 does sort of snowball through. Uh, and so um, there is, you know, I think there, it's it's sometimes not unreasonable for for folks in the U.S. to be suspicious of government and to feel like it hasn't delivered for them. Oftentimes, hasn't delivered for them. Uh, and so, uh, you know, I think sometimes it's hard for us sitting in Australia with uh, access to government services and and for the most part, uh, uh, um, sort of efficient, effective and professional government services to really understand, uh, you know, that it's often a different story in the, in the US. 
It still was interesting to me, though, to to hear um, Hochschild tell the story of how Louisiana politics has, has evolved uh, from that old Huey Long idea of a chicken in every pot, a populist Southern Democrat who at least cared about people's living standards, to Bobby Jindal, a conservative Republican who's focused much more on uh, tax concessions for the top end and has seen... Louisiana moved to the bottom of the rankings for infant mortality, for education outcomes, for environmental outcomes. Uh, you know, all these stories about mysterious cancer clusters, unswimmable rivers. Uh, you can't help thinking that even if, you know, whatever criticisms you could make of the EPA, uh, that probably a stronger role for the Federal Environmental Protection Authority in Louisiana would be would be good. No doubt, no doubt. Although, I mean, I think this was this was one. In, this is something that was interesting about Hochschild's book that, um, to my mind, it focused on a different demographic of Trump's uh, of Trump's uh, voter base than uh, than hillbilly elegy. You know, you think hillbilly elegy very much focused on Appalachia, very much focused on uh, you know the sort of the 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 white poor and the white disenfranchised. Um, these are these are people genuinely suffering from economic uh, insecurity and distress. Um, but that, but but while a significant portion of the U.S. population, that's not a that's not a large enough demographic to get you elected president. Mm. Um, and so I think what was interesting about Hochschild's book is that she focuses on a different part of Trump's uh, voter base. This is for the most part middle class uh, uh, whites um, who are not doing it tough, but they're definitely working hard and not feeling like they're getting ahead. And I think that's a really interesting uh, point to focus on because, because for that group, uh, you know, the, the Huey Long type put a chicken in every pot, is not a message that resonates. They're not poor. Uh, what they feel like is that they're working hard and that they're not seeing the fruits of that hard work uh, in a way that they had anticipated. And so the, the, the reason why a Bobby Jindal uh, speaks to them is because they do, they do think uh, that... Um, that that if if only the if only the world was constructed in a way where hard work was rewarded, where queue jumpers uh, uh, weren't sort of fetishized, uh, that that things would that things would be different for them. It's sort of this group that longs for a return to the golden age, uh, um, where where sort of patriotism and community and church attendance were the were the pillars uh, were the pillars of um, of a well-led life, and it feels like a it it feels like a yearning for for uh, uh, for that, um, and so in 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 that sense the you know it's not necessarily it's not necessarily irrational uh, that that these folks are supporting. Uh, 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 some of the Tea Party candidates, particularly when when you return to what we said earlier on, that a lot of this support is in fact emotional. Uh, what they're really looking for is someone to say, yes, you know, patriotism is a valuable instinct, and church attendance and community are are important, and that it's not just about the government coming in and 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 providing support. It is about independence and self reliance and those. Uh, those those various uh, uh, qualities, um, but what's interesting is when you put those two when you put those two demographics together, you then to you, you then start to get towards a sort of you know the the sort of the high thirties and, and and low forty percent of the population that Trump managed to uh, uh, to, to to convince. Um, I, that was to me the value of reading these books side by side. Mm. And uh, in, certainly uh, in the in in the book, I remember being struck in particular uh, by this tale of a guy who 
uh, told of renovating a friend's house and spending all of this all of this time uh, renovating the house, uh, and then having it reclaimed for a pipeline, and being proud nonetheless that he was able to uh, give his house over to, uh, to to this pipeline development, which just seemed so hard for uh, for, for me to fathom. Yeah. Um, and uh, but I guess speaks to that uh, the notion of sacrifice, I suppose, sacrificing for a cause that you uh, you you believed in, uh, you believe in, and and the sense that uh, those on the left haven't been as good as some on the right uh, in speaking to the the broad gamut of uh, of, of values and. Uh, Speaking about sacrifice and tradition and loyalty, uh, that kind of talk tends to be more common on the right. Yeah, I think I think that's right. I mean, I would, you know, my my, my sort of small window into this world was, you know, I used to uh, fish all the time through the Appalachian Mountains, uh, you know, in the Great Smoky Mountains in Tennessee and the Blue Ridge in Virginia and up through the Catskills in New York, um, and in these small little towns, you know, I would, would frequently uh, be at bars. Uh, in the evenings, talking to people, and you would come across, you would come across these wonderful outdoors, outdoors, uh, um, and uh, um, uh, people who would spend their uh, all their leisure hours uh, fishing and backpacking and uh, hunting, um, incredibly knowledgeable about the outdoors and very passionate about conservation, uh, and yet at the same time would be members of the Tea Party. Uh, who would, um, you know, who would uh, implicitly be supporting uh, the um, the dismemberment of the EPA, the Environmental Protection Authority? And so, I mean, it does. It's a sort of a, an analogous story, I suppose, to the one that you just mentioned about uh, renovating the house uh, and selling it to the to the pipeline. But it, I mean, I guess it just speaks to the fact that you know we are made up of multitudes, and uh, you know we have different sets of values which. Uh, can at times be complementary, but at times competing, mm. um, and that none of us are, uh, are always wholly consistent, um, uh, and that that some of these things override uh, the uh, the other. And I think in in this situation, that what you just mentioned, that the desire for for a lot of this group, for you know, for community uh, uh, solidarity. Um, uh, for sort of you know for uh, for clean living for want of a better for want of a better 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 term uh, um, uh, for self reliance for patriotism for sacrifices you just as you just mentioned th those things trump uh, you know other 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 commitments mm. um, and I think you know I mean I think sometimes sometimes for those of us who are really interested in policy we do tend to be reductionist in how we think about these things tend to think that every, everything's driven by economics, for instance. It's all about economic inequality or it's all about jobs uh, which have been automated or, or shipped offshore. Um, you know, and as I said before, some of that may lay, lay the groundwork, but I, I suspect that there's just a much deeper, more complex story that goes to uh, um, the support for someone like Donald Trump and... Um, uh, uh, you know, it sort of behooves us to to, to think in a more mm. holistic sense. Yeah, I worry about that uh, that brand of um, laundry list progressives. You know, we're progressives because we believe in this policy which costs this amount, and this policy which costs this amount, and this policy which costs this amount, uh, and fail to connect to tradition or, uh, you know, to use that old blue labour phrase, nostalgia. Uh, that notion that uh, we have to be telling stories which link back. And, uh, um, you know, I don't buy the blue labour thing entirely. I got a bit worried when it sort of seemed to be playing footsie with some of the more extreme views on race in Britain. Um, but John Crudus has this lovely thing where he talks about uh, Labor's championing of uh, a... Uh, death benefit for the poor in Britain, uh, which allowed the poor to avoid the indignity of being buried in a pauper's grave. Now, if you're looking at policies in terms of their dollar value, you'd never talk about this. But if you're talking about it in terms of a value sense, a nostalgia, a tradition, uh, then it's an important part of, of British Labor's story. Um, so one of the things that 
I've been grappling with is how uh, we make sure as progressives that, that we're always um, reaching back into, into traditions as well and making sure that we have a, a sense of continuity rather than trying to remake the world anew. And I suppose that the criticism you often hear around Hillary Clinton's campaign, I think there's a lot of unfair criticism directed at it, but, but one of the criticisms is that there's, there's just a, uh, a, a whole set of policies which don't connect together, uh, each individually good but collectively failing to, to be a story. Yeah, I mean, I think you're absolutely right on that, Andrew. Um, well, if, if you don't mind, let me just change uh, uh, tack quickly. I'd like to ask you a question. I mean, one of the, one of the things that I found uh, fascinating about uh, J.D. Vance's book um, was that it seemed, in my mind at least, to continue a, a, a sort of a, a narrative, uh, a sort of a nuanced narrative about what ails uh, uh, the U.S., um, uh, which sort of traces its lineage back to, you know, some of the debates uh, uh, in the 1970s and the 1980s in the US with people like Daniel Patrick Moynihan and uh, and some of the, you know, some of those um, some of those early Reagan Democrats, the sort of, the, you know, the the the, uh, uh, um, the sort of the neoconservatives, uh, the the earliest manifestation of the neoconservatives who left the Democratic Party and moved over to support. Uh, Reagan, who, who, who tended to focus on some of the cultural issues uh, which um, uh, they attributed to a lot of, um, uh, a lot of the issues uh, 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 within the US. Um, you know, they tended to focus on births out of wedlock, uh, um, you know, the, the fact that hard work had seemed, seemingly lost its value. Uh, you know that church attendance was declining. Uh, that that the way uh, people were parenting uh, had changed significantly, and I think you know it sort of reminded me of a of another book that was published last year, um, uh, uh, which was Charles Murray's Coming Apart, where he really sort of honed in on some of those cultural uh, issues. Um, and said that the values which are at the heart of the way that a new meritocratic establishment lead their lives, you know, hard, hard work, uh, um, you know, a, a focus on child rearing, uh, um, uh, sort of um, childbirth within marriage, those sorts of those sorts of cultural values, he had said that. Uh, you know that the that that meritocracy no longer advocated for those values. That they sort of had this um, this ecumenical niceness, uh, where you know um, uh, where they didn't hold people to account to the same values that they held themselves account to. Um, and I know that you know you probably disagree with many uh, things uh, that Charles Murray says, but I do remember in your book uh, Battlers and Billionaires that you did pick up on a couple of these issues around you know single parent households and 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 the way we parent. Um, what, what, what's your take on on all of that? Well, Daniel Patrick Monaghan is uh, certainly the most successful professor turned politician that uh, we've seen in the advanced world over the last few generations. Until the emergence of Andrew Lee. So, no, no. <laughs> so it's, uh, his, um, what he did in the US is, is pretty amazing, and so I've, I've always seen him as, uh, as something of a role model. But the Moynihan report uh, was incredibly controversial. Uh, it comes out in the 1960s and says that... Uh, uh, progressives should be concerned about the fact that uh, a quarter of African-American kids are uh, born out of wedlock. Um, now that number is three quarters and uh, uh, there's a lot of criticism. Uh, in fact, the phrase blaming the victim comes from the title of a book that, uh, that criticised Moynihan's work. I w so I decided in Battlers and Billionaires to focus instead just on single-parent households and, and spend less time looking at the question of marriage. Um, one of the striking things you notice, Mac, is that uh, in the 1970s, about one in ten kids were in uh, single-parent households. Now it's about uh, one in five. Uh, and that that increase is almost entirely among kids of 
lower educated parents. And so you've seen this, this divergence in, uh, in, in households. Now, again, I, I worry enormously about blaming the victim. It is hard enough to raise kids in a two-parent household, uh, and so the, the uh, amount of work that single parents do, I, I'm just uh, enormously in awe of. Um, but I'm also struck by the, uh, the, the challenges that people face in, these, uh, in, in single, single parent households. And it's not largely no fault divorce. Uh, you don't see uh, a big change around the 1975 changes. It's, uh, it's largely um, lower partner, partnering rates. Um, there's a fragile families study in the US which, uh, which looks at the rise of complex families. Uh, one of the most striking uh, results out of that is uh, among kids whose parents uh, weren't together at the time of the birth, um, most have a new half-sibling by the time they turn five, and so families become much more complex. Uh, again, I'm not sure exactly how we want to tackle this, but but I'm worried about it. And, and then there's, there's parenting style as well, but uh, I should let you offer your observations on family structure. No, I, I mean, I, I agree with you. I mean, they're, they're incredibly difficult, uh, incredibly, incredibly difficult uh, challenges. Um, you know, I mean, I, I, do, uh, I, I do think, though, that, um, that while on the one hand we need to be careful you know, I was for a for a you know for a while raised in a single parent uh, family, um, and so have uh, have some insight into the challenges and the enormous sacrifices that single parents uh, uh, go through, um, and I'm filled with nothing but admiration. I mean, as a uh, just like you, Andrew, as the father of um, of young young children, I just cannot even imagine how you would look to handle that uh, single handedly. Um, but at the, at the same time, the data and the evidence does seem to suggest that, uh, that kids raised in, in two-parent households uh, uh, um, with a certain set of values, uh, you know, uh, which focus on hard work and resilience and uh, attention to education, uh, do, do fare better. And so while a tricky one to navigate feels nonetheless extremely important, uh, and I guess, um, I guess I'm in a somewhat different position from you, not being, uh, not holding uh, elected office. But I do feel that, you know, what Charles Murray picked up on about that ecumenical niceness, and the the unwillingness to, to you know, to speak hard truths to people, um, uh, you know, en ends up doing 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 some harm, uh, you know. And I guess it is the um, uh, the the you know it's that sort of discrimination of of of, of um, the soft discrimination that people talk about. Uh, um, so I sort of feel on the one hand that it's not there are no easy solutions. Uh, on the other hand, I feel like they're important conversations, and they're the sorts of conversations that the church used to have. Uh, you know, and they were sort of in a moral position where they could issue these hard truths. They could they could they could stand behind them. Uh, and we've sort of lost that, and I don't, you know, to your point, I don't know, uh, I don't know how to do it, do that in a way that doesn't offend, but it somehow feels important that we should be having those conversations. Yes, I think that's right. Uh, and you know, my friends uh, Justin Wolfers and Betsy Stevenson have a paper in the Quarterly Journal of Economics where they show that the advent of no-fault divorce in the United States uh, led to a reduction in spousal homicide. Uh, you know, just intuitively, if people can walk out of violent relationships, then they're more likely to stay alive, and that's got to be good for the kids. And one of my friends from university fell pregnant. Uh, she didn't believe in, in abortion, so there was no question of, uh, that she would keep the child. Um, but it was... a um, a relationship which she knew wasn't for life, so she went on to have the child on her own, uh, found somebody else. Uh, they're now happily married with uh, with two more kids, and she would have been far worse off in a world that insisted that she marry the father of her uh, her first child. Uh, it, probably the only kind of uh, obvious change here is that it's a good argument for same-sex marriage, but uh, uh, beyond beyond that, I, I struggle to, to think as to how it translates in, in a policy sense. 
Um, yeah, I think that's well, There are many arguments in favour of same-sex marriage. <laughs> that probably <laughs> very low down the list. I mean, one one other question I had for you, Andrew. Is, I mean, if we sort of move our attention, you know, from the US to Australia, how look? You know, I mean, I was living in the US at the time uh, that Donald Trump uh, uh, got the Republican nomination. I was actually I was a I was having coffee one day with Mark Scott, the former uh, CEO of the ABC, and he asked me whether, you know, whether Donald Trump had uh, had any possibility of getting the Republican nomination. And I sort of assured him with complete and utter confidence uh, that there was no possibility whatsoever that Trump would uh, get the nomination, uh, that the numbers just didn't stack up, stack up, the demographics weren't there for him. Um, and uh, you know, obviously, uh, looked silly uh, uh, as as events unfolded. I'm sort of interested to get your thoughts on you know could could we see something like uh, you know the same sort of populist backlash emerge in Australia? Uh, you know, my my read of the situation would suggest no. The demographics just don't support it. Um, but I was deeply wrong. Uh, previously, and I so I worry that I could be deeply wrong again. What, how, how do you how do you think about that? So, I mean, I think the deep economic inequality isn't as bad. You don't have this increase in mortality that you're seeing extraordinarily among low-educated American whites. Uh, you don't have the wages going backwards for, uh, for at the bottom of the distribution in Australia, as you see in the US. Uh, but also, you know, one of the drivers, I think, in the, in the US is just that um, Donald Trump was better at capture... It was a better political entrepreneur uh, than George Wallace and Pat Buchanan before him. Um, so there is some... Um, not one for great man of history kind of arguments, but there is something about his unique set of skills uh, of utilising uh, Twitter and breaking taboos, uh, which allowed him to be to be extremely successful. One of the one of the most fascinating things I've seen recently was a four or five part interview that Charlie Rose did with Steve Bannon. Uh, uh, so Charlie Rose, a, uh, a sort of a, a, a noted uh, U.S. Uh, uh, interviewer, media media personality, uh, interviewed Steve Bannon as this sort of uh, long format uh, discussion, uh, and it was absolutely absolutely fascinating to me. Uh, so Steve Bannon is highly articulate, really insightful, very thoughtful, uh, um, uh, and. And extremely praiseworthy of 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 of, of Donald Trump, um, you know. Now, obviously, we've probably all read these stories about Bannon as Trump's Svengali, and um, but it really did put a different gloss to me on what what Trump was doing, um, uh, and uh, you know, it, it really it really did capture, I think, what you just said. Uh, you, you know, that it, it was a it was a sort of a response. Uh, uh, you know, sort of an economic nationalism, but married married with this uh, this sort of mm. you know em, em, emotional emotional feel. But I'm I'm interested also in getting your thoughts on. I mean, one of the things that's always interested me about you know the difference between Australia and the US um, is is you know the the US really does seem to have uh, to have divided between the sort of the coastal elites and the and the and the sort of the rural. Um, uh, the rural populations, and there's a sort of a rough 50-50 split in the U.S. between those 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 demographics, um, and it's a demographic that we don't really it's not really a big split uh, in Australia, um, uh, and I, I, I sort of I wonder whether that uh, that that demographic advantage that Australia has. Uh, also inoculates us against the sort of the rise of a kind of a, the, the sorts of populism that we see that we see in the US. Yeah, I mean you you do see it. I mean even in uh, North Canberra, which is uh, you know most people wouldn't wouldn't think of as exactly uh, Rust Belt territory. Uh, guy came into my uh, uh, office to chat the other day and. Uh, uh, He's in his late 50s. He's worked a series of 
um, delivery jobs. Uh, the most recent one was picking up uh, garbage bins on behalf of, uh, of, a, of a local authority. This is the broken garbage bins where you then, then deliver a new one. Um, but struggled to, to hold that down and had a, a delivery job in food services that um, he had a six-hour shift and just found himself quite stressed about being able to get things done in that time. Um, he's got a bung shoulder. He's got some problems with his legs. He suffers from uh, from from stress. Um, he told me he was beautifully candid about it. He said that he'd um, he'd had a good conversation with his wife beforehand about the need to keep his anger under control while he was speaking with me. Um, but then at one point in the interview, the, the anger sort of bubbled over when he was spoke, spoke about his, his wife and he said, uh, uh, you know, if anyone ever tried to hurt her, uh, I, would, I, I would be at them immediately. And uh, uh, you, could, you could see his, um, his passion, his anger, and also that for in the current labour market, this was a man who was, was really struggling to find meaningful work. Um, and uh, and is still a decade from from getting the getting the public pension. Um, quite critical of immigrants, who he sees as as taking jobs, um, but passionately supportive of veterans. Um, unprompted through our conversation, a number of times he talked about how he wished he could have served and how he admires the sacrifice of the veterans. And it just reminded me so much of. Uh, uh, what J.D. Vance talks about in the in the role of the U.S. military and uh, in as a as a, a traditional uh, institution and, and one that that inspires loyalty even among those who haven't served. Yeah, it's a terrific story, uh, and it does. You know, we've talked before about you know there, de there definitely does seem this challenge at the moment. You know, obviously Australia didn't have the manufacturing base that the U.S. did. Um, uh, so, you know, the decline has been less not noticeable. Um, but it definitely does feel like it's a, it's a key challenge for the country, that sort of, you know, that 40 to 60 age mm. uh, uh, demographic, um, people whose uh, jobs have, uh, you know, either been sort of outsourced or automated or offshored. Um, you know, it does feel like we need to be doing more uh, uh, to help those people... Um, to, uh, to get back on their feet again. It's a challenging issue, of course. Um, I, guess, uh, I guess, though, to link back to what I was saying earlier, it doesn't feel like in that demographic there would be enough support to elect an alternative party in this country. It doesn't feel like, you know, it still, to me, feels like that that amount of political support sort of caps out at 15 or 20 percent of the vote. Um, uh, it's hard to see that that vote would get to, uh, you know, into the 40s or the 50s. Well, of course, you know, uh, of course, Tony Abbott was a, you know, in many ways a populist right-wing, uh, right-wing leader. Uh, um, but I mean, I just, I, I sort of, I, you know, one one of the things that that does give me some comfort. Is you know that we that that Australian prosperity has for the most part proceeded in harmony uh, with with social progress. Uh, obviously, you know some of your work suggests that inequality is on the rise in Australia, but uh, but it nonetheless feels like we've done a decent job uh, of 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 trying to make sure that we've got this you know this nice little society. Uh, uh, here that really distributes the proceeds as fairly as we can, and I think, um, you know, I think, you know, one hopes that that remains a bulwark uh, mm. against the rise of some of these, you know, these these populist trends that we've seen elsewhere in the world. Well, and at risk of plugging my own book, one of the arguments that that I make in choosing openness, this uh, this this little booklet that I have out with Penguin and Lowy, is uh, that. If you're a progressive, you should support openness because it raises aggregate living standards. But if you're a supporter of openness, you should be a progressive because it's important to distribute uh, the gains which are otherwise unequally distributed. Um, and there's 
quite striking evidence out of the United States, for example, that congressional districts which are heavily exposed to trade with China uh, in a country with a low social, weak social safety net uh, have seen a, a rise in uh, voting, voting rates for uh, extreme parliamentarians, uh, typically Tea Party Republicans, but also uh, so in some instances far left Democrats. Uh, and I think unless you unless you have those that great education system, the social safety net, the policies that allow people to switch jobs, uh, then you can you can really see a, a backlash against openness. So there's there's one one other aspect we uh, we haven't touched on, which I, I sort of wanted to get get your thoughts on, and this is. Uh, uh, differences in, in parenting style. I'm going to keep myself in the sort of uncomfortable space, but this was one of the other bits and battlers and billionaires that I really uh, sort of found difficult. Um, and this is the, uh, the, the results you see when you look uh, across uh, high and low educated parents uh, at the amount of uh, teaching time and the amount of words that are spoken. Um, so, for example, uh, High-educated parents uh, average 22 minutes a day of reading and colouring with their kids. Low-educated parents uh, average 16 minutes. Um, so it's a 40% difference in teaching time, uh, largely due to values rather than to, to resources. And uh, the sociologists talk about two different styles of parenting, this notion of concerted cultivation or what we think of as pushy parenting, uh, high SES parenting, and, uh, and then this idea of natural growth parenting, uh, which uh, the idea of free-range kids. Um, progressives have stepped back from that discussion, but all the evidence that I could see out of from the sociologists was that concerted cultivation seemed to be associated with better academic performance, higher incomes as, uh, as adults. Uh, but as a government, we're, we're pretty, I think, justifiably wary about uh, telling parents how to do their job. Uh, do you think we, we ought to get into this game a little bit, a little bit more? Yeah, I mean, I understand the reticence. Uh, um, but I mean, to, me, it, to me, it comes back to that, that, that issue that we discussed before about that sort of that, that, that desire of a new meritocracy to be ecumenically nice, to, you know, to, to not want to offend. Uh, so, um, you know, to not want to issue judgment. Um, and we certainly live in a world now where, you know, where we sort of withhold judgment on 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 on, on many things. Um, yeah, yeah, I do. I mean, I I think the evidence is in on a lot of on a lot of those things you mentioned. Um, you know, the amount of time you spend with your kids, the amount of words you read to them. I think another one is you know is kids who dine with their parents uh, each night. It's, it's similarly, uh, um, big correlations between um, between that and uh, and outperformance uh, in schools. Um, so yeah, I do think I do think that uh, I do think that we should be encouraging those sorts of values, and I think that you know that um, you know this is a conversation that we've had many years over the past. I, I do I sort of wonder whether there is a role for politicians to play a more active role in trying to inculcate some of those values. Uh, I think there is, you know, uh, God forbid, the sort of the possibility for politicians to play a more priestly role within the community. Uh, in the sense of talking about the things that priests used to talk about, which are the sort of which are which are, you know, are values and and ways uh, to lead to lead your life, they're often not popular messages to give. But if you convince that they're important, uh, you know, and if your if if your role as a politician is to act in the best interests of your constituents and of the public and of the nation as a whole. Then I think it is incumbent on you uh, and the political class to be more active in in having in having those conversations. Um, you know, I mean, you know, it's easy for me to say because I don't have to. Uh, you know, I, I, my performance is not. Uh, you know, I don't submit it to judgment at the ballot box. But um, you know, I, I I often think about someone like a Paul Keating, who just would always have front and center in his mind what was in the best interests of 
his constituents and the electorate and the country. Uh, and you know, uh, you know, to the rest, uh, to, to be damned with the rest. I do think there's something in there's something in that that if you you know if you as a politician believe uh, um, that parents ought to be spending more time with their children and reading more, and then, then you should advocate. Then you should advocate for that. I think. Calling on uh, on politicians to be more like priests would probably be horrifying to politicians, priests, parishioners, and electors in uh, in in a equal equal measure. Um, but I know what you're saying, and uh, and this uh, this idea of the 30 million word gap between kids in uh, advantaged and disadvantaged households that kids in disadvantaged households are hearing 30 million fewer words uh, does make you think that this has got to have significant implications for, for kids' life chances. Uh, I'm, I'm much more for light-touch interventions. There's an interesting one I've seen recently which is simply providing feedback to, to parents about the number of words that they speak to their child every hour uh, and, uh, and that seems to be to be less uh, sort of... Uh, Brutal in terms of how it engage, engages in the family family space. Um, we want to be careful about how we do it. Um, funnily, the last politician I can recall who spent a lot of time talking about reading to your kids was Mark Latham. I mean, you do. I mean, the 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 trap though is that you you can end up with this discrimination of double standards. Uh, you know, and I think part of um, you know. Part of what we need to think about is that this new meritocracy, uh, you know, no longer preaches what it practices. You know, we we all we all spend an inordinate amount of time with our children, reading to them, preparing them, uh, you know, uh, uh, talking to them. Uh, um, I just sort of sometimes worry that, you know, that we're worried about imparting to others the, the very secret of what we think is essential to the success of our own children. And that's a problem. And I mean, I think that was what I, I mean, one of the things that I really took out of Charles Murray's book is that he sort of talked about this new meritocracy which has replaced the old, uh, the old um, sort of WASP aristocracy. And that this new meritocracy was very much cocooned in the same suburbs and they sent their kids to the same schools and they had this secret for success uh, which they basically did not uh, advance or foist upon other, other, other people. Um, and, and that this class works extremely hard, they're extremely ambitious for their, their children they intermarry, they don't mix outside of their little cocoon. And that is problematic for a couple of reasons. I think it's obviously problematic uh, 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 in the sense that it, um, it, ca it causes a sort of this segregated class uh, uh, which is differentiated uh, and separated from others in the community. But I think it's deeply problematic also for the democracy. This is sort of the at the heart of a democracy is the idea that you mix with your neighbour, that you understand their lives and their problems, um, and that historically we would do that, you know, uh, whether it be through um, through community organisations or through the church or, uh, but there were there were windows into other people's lives, and I do I do worry that that these days. Um, uh, this sort of new meritocracy leads such a different life, leads such different lives, and I, and I don't mean that just in the sense of the one percent that their incomes are vastly inflated, which is obviously true. I mean that also from a values and a cultural perspective, um, that their lives are so different now, um, and you know that 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 inability to understand how other people in the country live goes to me to the heart of sort of goes to me to unraveling the fabric of a, of a democracy. I worry quite a bit about that. Yeah, I enjoyed uh, Robert Putnam's Our Kids for this reason, where he talks about how in the town of Port Clinton in Ohio, where he grew up, uh, there was just the norm that uh, 
the uh, that parents would look after all of the kids in town and uh, maybe a kid from a disadvantaged background would grow up with fewer resources but there was an expectation that the CEO dad would step in as the footy coach and uh, uh, help, the, help the child uh, get access to, uh, to good jobs in the labour market. Uh, and now those social ties have essentially bro broken down, uh, far less social mixing. You know, Putnam's a big fan of church going and points out the church was often one of the places where um, affluent and poor families met one another and, and that there's just not that, that environment for uh, the, the easy interplay for the affluent families to make sure that, they're, they're, that they understand what it is to be poor, uh, for the low-income families to have access to the social, social networks. Yeah, I mean, I think, I think, I think, that's, I think that's spot on. Uh, you know, so one of the things that I've often thought about, I mean, I, you know, coming back to Australia from the US, uh, you know, the emphasis on private schools for secondary education uh, is really astonishing here. Um, and so right from an early age, you have this segregation uh, by, by, by class. Um, and, you know, I mean, I think that's, uh, that has to have problematic implications for the country. Um, and I sort of wonder, you know, we've, we've had conversations before about whether the country could institute some kind of compulsory national service uh, you know, not not a military service, but some some form of service which forces people at a young age to mix with people from different parts of the country or uh, from different backgrounds than themselves uh, than they themselves uh, uh, enjoyed. Um, I sort of, uh, you know, I, I, obviously there are many impracticalities with that uh, with that sort of a proposal, but uh, I d I do think we need. Uh, we need to be thinking through ways uh, to promote more engagement and interaction, uh, you know, across across class and cultural barriers in the country. Yeah, I'm not a fan of national service, but it is interesting when you talk to people from Israel where they talk about uh, how their period of national service was really a period of getting to to meet people from quite different social backgrounds than their own. So why uh, why aren't you a fan? I, uh, I think it would be incredibly expensive. I think there's a lot of young people who know what they want to do with their lives and uh, forcing them to uh, international service um, would, would be uh, to impose a burden on them. Uh, but I'm interested in the role that the, the military played in, in J.D. Vance's story. Um, you, know, you mentioned a few episodes which seemed like they, they might be apocryphal, but one which really rang true for me was where he talks about going off to buy his first car uh, and his intention was to buy an expensive car and get dealer financing uh, and it was his sergeant who said no you want to get a cheaper car that you can afford uh, and you want to take out a cheaper loan uh, and so it was uh, his his senior officer who gave him the advice that uh, a, uh, a mum or a dad might have offered uh, in, in a household where people had greater financial literacy. Um, that parenting role that the US military served for, uh, for J.D. Vance, I thought was really interesting. Mm, yeah, that's absolutely right. Um, yeah, I'm not, sure, I'm not sure that national service need necessarily be prohibitively expensive. There are probably different ways that you could structure it. Um, so I think, though, the value for the country would be, uh, would be meaningful. I haven't thought through it in any, in any, in any, uh, in any depth. Um, I just do think that there's... I mean, it means something to have a democracy. And I don't think that that's just about showing up to the ballot box once every three years. Uh, it does impose obligations on you. And I just worry that... Um, you know, I just worry that the lived, ex the, the, the life experience today from a young age uh, of, you know, of, of, you know, of kids who are brought up in the lower North Shore in Sydney and attend private schools from a young age and then attend university, uh, just so different um, from someone from the western suburbs of Sydney or from Elizabeth in Adelaide or wherever. Um, and I just think that a little bit of intermixing might uh, might help to broaden horizons, uh, and and sort of cut down 
and cut through some of that cultural misunderstanding. Um, you know, we'd spoken before about how, you know, a, a lot of the issues that we've talked about this afternoon are, are cultural ones, they're, they're values. And sometimes a lot of these, uh, you know, some of the, some of the, the stories that we've mentioned are, are people who've felt marginalised and cut out, uh, not just in an economic sense, but even in a, in a, cult, in a cultural sense. And so I think, I think trying to find new ways to encourage that intermixing uh, um, is uh, you know is really important. One for, well, let me let me one final question then, Andrew. I mean, we'd um, I think at one at one point in um, in strangers in their own land, uh, there's a discussion about how people in the U.S. are no longer happy uh, for their children to intermarry across political parties. Uh, you've got three young boys. Uh, as they grow up, how would you feel about um, about your boys marrying uh, marrying uh, conservatives or right wing populists? So I'd be totally comfortable, uh, and it, it is one of those surveys that I find striking. You know, back in the nineteen sixties, Americans hardly cared if their kids married uh, somebody of a different political party, uh, but were shocked if their kids married somebody of a different race or turned out to be gay or lesbian. Uh, these days, Americans are more troubled by the thought that their child might marry somebody of a different political party than that they might be gay or lesbian or marry somebody of a different race. Um, it's almost like uh, hyperpartisanship has become the only form of accepted discrimination in, uh, in, in American society. Um, I try and uh, uh, make sure that with my kids I'm talking about my political opponents as having different views from me rather than being bad people um, and that when they start bad-mouthing my political opponents then I'm the first to say, well, I disagree with, with him but I, he's, he's, a, he's a good quality and, and you know, he's, he or she is, is fundamentally a, uh, a decent person of, uh, of, of different views. Um, that's not entirely right. There's obviously some evil people on the other side of Parliament, but broadly, it's uh, it's it's a it's a it's a fair a fair comment. And I've been trying in my Twitter feed just to throw in a handful of thoughtful conservatives because it's sort of I think it's good for you to uh, to encounter a well argued uh, opinion that's contrary to your own uh, regularly. But but what do you do? I mean, hyperpartisanship is is a worry. How do you seek out conversations with those who think differently from you? Well, so I just vastly prefer them. Uh, so, I mean, you know, my, my regular go-to reads are nearly all conservative, uh, conservative journals. Um, in, in, in Such part, as? Uh, well, I mean, I, I, I regularly read, uh, you know, the, the, the articles by Roger Scruton or by Theodore Dalrymple. I read City Journal. I read the National Review. I mean, I, you know, I read the Weekly Standard. So, I mean, th these, are, these are to me just they are, they are high quality publications that intellectually engage me. Um, so I feel challenged in the views that I have. You, you, you know, if I read, um, if I read sort of progressive uh, journals, I, I, they tend, they're just speaking to the, the converted. So I, I sort of, I find them less engaging. Uh, and so I, you know, I, I, I prefer to engage with, um, with folks who have a different view, who disagree with, disagree with me. Uh, it certainly makes life more interesting. And so I would, I mean, I would be actively encouraging my kids uh, to have those sorts of relationships. Of course, I mean, it, you know, you know, I guess the, the trick is that you know some some sometimes you know we we, we sort of maybe have an idealised in our mind. I mean, when we think about our kids marrying a, a sort of a Trump supporter, we think about the best possible Trump supporter. <laughs> um, you know, if they were to marry uh, one of the clowns from Charlottesville, uh, um, you know, with the the neo Nazis, I don't think we'd um, uh, we'd 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 be so encouraging. Um, uh, so, but yeah, yeah. Broad, broad, broadly, broadly speaking, I, I mean, I think, um, I think you're absolutely right. You're you're, you're right to, uh, you're right to push back on the hyperpartisanship. I, you know, as 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 you would hear from your constituents day in day out, it's uh, it's sort of nauseating. Um, 
So the differences between the two parties as a, as a sort of an independent observer are just not, are just not meaningful enough to, to get that worked up, uh, you know. Uh, and so I think, you know, I think you're, you're right to identify uh, uh, people on the other side of politics who are, who are well-meaning and intelligent and thoughtful. Um, and I think, you know, I think the public would be uh, would be much more receptive to politics in general if they thought there was a higher quality of, 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 of discussion. It always strikes me that, you know, when you meet Australian politicians individually, uh, they all seem reasonably impressive. Uh, but as an aggregate, I'm not sure that that's the characterisation you'd given them. It's sort of, uh, sort of underwhelming in the aggregate. Uh, um, uh, the sum is certainly not greater than the parts. And so... That's a challenge for the country, I think, and I think you're doing a, you know, you're doing a terrific part uh, to try to um, to try to be a sort of a, a lone spokesman for, for <laughs> making you embarrassed now, Andrew. Well, uh, on that uh, on that specific compliment and general insult, uh, we should wrap up our discussion of uh, Vance and Hochschild, uh, Putnam and Murray. Uh, Mac, thanks for uh, the uh, first of what I hope will be multiple good book conversations. Well, thanks for inviting me, Andrew.